Our reading this morning from God's Word comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, various verses. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do, that is, all, that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be my prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Paul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you according to all that we have heard with our ears. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Good morning. Uh, Wow, it's good to see so many of you this morning. Thanks for putting up with us being so crowded. Uh, that's a great thing. This is like the Super Bowl for pastors, somebody told me this morning. So, no pressure, right? Uh, but it is neat to see it so full. Uh, thank you for being here to celebrate this day with us. And, and we, are, we are grateful uh, for your willingness to, to put up with the inconvenience of it being so full. Uh, we're going uh, to look at this passage from Second Samuel this morning. And conventional wisdom might suggest that because it's Easter Sunday, we should read a New Testament passage 
maybe one of the accounts of the story of the resurrection in the Gospels, but we're going to continue to do what we've been laboring to do since about the time school began last fall. That is to tell the story of the Old Testament scriptures and show how they find their completion and fulfillment in the events of Easter weekend in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that might seem strange to you, and if it does, that strangeness is due to a problem with the way we read and understand the Bible. By that I mean that there's a story at the very end of of Luke's gospel where Jesus meets with two of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And it's on the afternoon of the resurrection, and uh, they are confused. They're they're confused and not quite sure what to make of all of the reports that are coming out of Jerusalem about the things that have happened there over the weekend. And Luke says that Jesus walks with them on the road, and he begins to, to show them all of the Old Testament scriptures and how they really, all that the Old Testament had to say really was pointing people to him. That the entire Bible, from Genesis all the way to the end, not just the four Gospels, but that the whole thing is really about Jesus. And so it's, it's something that I want us to maybe to come to understand this morning. And to do that, I, I, can't, I can't say it better than Tim Keller, who's a pastor in our denomination, can. And so I want you to watch this video with me for just a minute, if you will. And, we'll, and hopefully this will illustrate what I'm talking about. What is the Bible really about? Is the Bible basically about me and what I must do? Or is it basically about Jesus and what he has done? When you read in Luke and Acts how Jesus, in those 40 days, uh, got his disciples together, 40 days before he ascended, after he was raised, what was he doing? Basically, he was saying everything in the Old Testament is about me. He says, the reason you didn't understand what I was about was you didn't realize that everything in the prophets and the Psalms and the the law was pointing to me. Do you believe the Bible is basically about you or basically about him? Is David and Goliath basically about you and how you can be like David and Goliath or basically about him, the one who really took on the the only giants that can really kill us? And so his victory is imputed to us. Who's it really about? That's the fundamental question. And when that happens, then you start to read the Bible new, you know. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden, his garden, a much tougher garden, and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who though innocently slain has blood that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go into the, wor- into the void, not knowing whither he went. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. While God said to Abraham, now I know you love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we at the foot of the cross can say to God, now we know that you love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Jesus is the true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up in discipline. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who is at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, 
He's a truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life. Who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish, says, when I perish, I'll perish for them, to save my people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so we could be brought in. He's the real Passover lamb. He's, he's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible's not about you. Jesus is the true and better everything. Uh, that's what my wife calls that. The true and better everything. Is the Bible about me and what I have to do for God, or is the Bible about God and what he's done for me? In Jesus, and particularly in the resurrection to save and rescue me. Is the Bible about me? Is the Bible about him? Is the Bible what, about what I have to do for God? Is the Bible about what he's done in Jesus for me? And the reason that's such an important question, and the reason we take the time to ask it this morning is, is because how you read and understand the Bible has a lot to do with how you understand what it means to be a Christian. <clears throat> is Christianity a message about me and what God expects of me and what I need to do to go to work for him? Or is Christianity a message about God and how he works for his people? Let me put it another way. Is the gospel instruction? Is the gospel advice? Is it spiritual advice? Or is the gospel good news? See, how you answer that question means everything. How you answer it determines whether you're a Christian or just a good, moral, even religious person. Because those two things are not the same thing. And so today, this passage is about Jesus. He's the true and better everything. Today of all days, we proclaim and celebrate the work that he has done for us in his death and resurrection. And this passage, I believe, here in 2 Samuel 7 helps us do that. And it helps us do it in three ways. And so you'll see that being the three points of the outline that I gave you in your worship folder. Uh, they don't exactly correspond because things change over the week. And I'm sorry, I have to turn that in early. And then, you know, God speaks. And I kind of have to go with what he says. You with me? It's kind of the way this works. So three ways this passage helps us celebrate him and make today all about him. By showing us, number one, that all of life is grace. Secondly, by showing us that we're, little, we're in the middle of living in a story of grace. And then thirdly, it also shows us how we can become a people of grace. So all of life is grace. We live in the middle of a story of grace. And ultimately, the passage is just going to show us how we can become a people of grace. Let's look at all three of those things this morning in the few minutes we have together. First, <clears throat> all of life is grace. Let me show you this from the text. Okay, here's what's happened. King David has been fighting his enemies for decades. And he has finally begun to settle down into the capital city. In verse 1, we're told he's living in his house, which means there are no more wars to be fought. They've been able to, to push enough resources and manpower to the construction of David's palace. And so there's finally peace. And David begins to settle in and he begins to realize something. You know, I'm living in a house of cedar, verse 2, he says which is the Bible's way of describing how expensive and lavish the palace was that David was living in. David's living in a house of cedar, but God, we're told in verse 2, is still dwelling in a tent. And this bothers David. So he proposes a solution to Nathan the prophet. He wants to build a house for the Lord. And because no pastor ever said no to a person wanting to fund a building project, Nathan says, absolutely, sounds like a good idea to me. Go, do all that is in your heart, he says, verse 3, for the Lord is with you. Now, 
what we need to understand is this was a very common part of ancient Near Eastern societies. When a king had achieved military victory like this, the first order of business, whenever he began to settle into his capital city over and over and over again, the first order of business for the king would be to build a huge temple to his God to honor and to celebrate the God. So typically what would happen was is the king would build the temple, the God would come and he would say, well, now since you've honored me in the construction of my temple, I will now bless you and make you prosperous and make your reign long. And so the pattern in the ancient societies was the king builds a God, a house, the God in response comes and promises to bless and prosper the king. That's what David's doing. David's just following the pattern. He's doing what all the other kings around him would have done. And what's amazing about the text is, is the Lord God, the God of the Bible, comes to him in the midst of this. Contrary to even what Nathan thought would be the case, God comes and says, no, I'm not like the other gods. And here's what the Lord says. Hey, here's what's happening. The Lord is challenging David in this, and he's challenging the religious impulse of the people of that day and ours too. Because all of the religions of the world, from this time all the way down to what you and I experience on a daily basis in the places that we go, all of the religions of the world basically work the same way. They, they say, you build a house for God and he will bless you. And even religious people within the church default to this way of thinking. Live for God, follow the rules, be a good person, go to church, then God will be pleased with you and he will bless you. Build a house for God and then he will go to work to do things for you. But what the God of the Bible is saying here is, David, I'm not like all the other gods that people worship. David, listen to this. This is, this is just amazing. David, I don't want you to build a house for me. You're not going to build a house for me, David. The opposite. I'm going to build a house for you. I am a God of sheer grace. Our relationship is not going to be based on what you do for me. It's going to be based on what I do for you. Because I'm a God of sheer grace. And what we have here in 2 Samuel 7 is a covenant ceremony. And a typical covenant would include all promises. Two people would come together and they'd make an agreement. And then this person would promise. And then this person would promise. And they would solidify the agreement. But here, unlike every other covenant ceremony where both parties are making promises, not this one, all of the emphasis, if you look in verses 1 through 17, all of the emphasis is on what God has done and will continue to do for David. The Lord is the first person subject of 23 verbs in these, in these verses. I took you from the pasture and made you king, he says. I have been with you wherever you went. I have cut off your enemies from you, David. I will make your name great. I will give you rest. I will give you a son. I will establish your kingdom over and over and over again. All of the emphasis is on what the Lord has done and will do for David, not what David has done or will do for the Lord. And still, if you're like me, there's pride. I hear that, but there's still this sense of wanting to perform, wanting to be able to do, do something so that I can look at people and say, look at what I've done. Look at what I've produced. And what's fascinating is, is often that, that sense of wanting to do something that gives me a name or that causes people to look at me and notice what I've done, that That sense of wanting to accomplish something is often the last domino of sin and unbelief to fall in a person's life. So a lot of people have some sort of religious experience or even a conversion experience. And as a result, what happens is they try now to live a good life or to be a good person. But see, that's not it. That's not Christianity. That's just religion. That's trying to build a house for God so he'll bless you. It's our pride wanting to do something that it can take credit for so it can grab that. See, God, see what I've done for you. 
Salvation's by grace, and that's why if you think that being a Christian is you go to work for God, you build a house for him. Can I be a friend and tell you you're not a Christian yet? You may be almost there, but you're not there yet. And one of my favorite illustrations of this in the scriptures probably is we, on Thursday night we gathered and read the story of, of Jesus washing his disciples' feet, and Jesus goes around the table, and there's no issue until he gets to Peter, and that seems to always be the case. If you know the Bible, you know Peter's like the hard-headed guy. He's the guy that you just know going into the meeting, he's going to be the one that's difficult. And Jesus gets to Peter, and Peter says, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And it's fascinating what Jesus says to him. He says, Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And the message is, Peter, you must let me do for you. And you must stop trying to so much do for me. Because the big deal in Peter's mind was Peter. Lord, all the rest of them may fall away, but I can count on one, you can count on one thing. Me. And that's hard, isn't it? Peter, you must let me do for you. It's hard. It's hard. And I mean, I can tell you how. And it's hard in all kinds of... Uh, is anybody else... Maybe it's just me, but is anybody else uncomfortable? I go to Publix and I'm uncomfortable because I know that my going to Publix is going to end in a fight with the Publix employee over whether they're going to take my groceries out to my car or I, I, I am, right? And we end up in a Mexican standoff of kindness with one another. No, I can do it. No, sir, sure. I'll, I'll, are you sure, sir? No, really. No, really. I can do it. <laughs> and that's about the way I live my life. No, really. I can do it. And so the doctrine before us this morning from this text is, you're not a Christian until you stop your doing and you let Jesus do for you. Before we planted this church, I got an opportunity to travel quite a bit overseas and one of the places I went a bunch was to India, and I remember my first trip to India, I, because the jet lag is just horrible, so you end up up at 2 o'clock in the morning, waiting, praying to God that the sun will come up as fast as possible because you're bored to death, and it's not like you can turn on the TV and watch something or whatever, so you just, and I remember the first, first night ever in India, I'm there, and about five thirty six o'clock in the morning, I'm just sitting at my desk reading, and all of a sudden I hear something crazy start happening outside of my window, just hooping and hollering and screaming and yelling, and I kind of got scared. And the guy who I was with, who traveled a whole bunch before me, said, do you have any idea what that is? I said, no, I have no idea. He said, come on, put your clothes on. We're going out there. I was like, we're go- what? Yes, we're going out there. And we went and walked around the corner of the hotel we were staying in to this, the, the kind of the opening of this little village. And there's the, the village temple there. And the people have gathered to worship early in the morning. And they're yelling and they're screaming and they're banging drums. And they're doing all of these things. And I said to my friend, what in the world are they doing? He said, they're waking the gods up. They're up, and now they're trying to get the gods up. They're waking the gods up because they want to go, they want to wake the gods up so the gods will pay attention to them, and then they'll get the blessing, and then they can go about their day. And it's fascinating. That's see, that's David here at, at the beginning of Second Samuel seven, saying, "I'm going to build a house for God. I'm going to build something for Him, so He'll wake up and bless me." And that pagan approach to God, I, I, it's hard to fathom. But can I? Just, has infiltrated even Christianity. Moralism is paganism. It's not Christianity, and I'm scared to death because our churches, from experience, are full of moralist pagans who think you can approach God on the basis of your spiritual performance. But the reality is it's either that or it's his grace. Those are the only two options. You can approach God on the basis of your spiritual performance. In other words, I do good, God blesses me. I do bad, 
God will punish me. Or you, you approach him and you relate to him on the basis of his grace. That God's disposition toward me has nothing to do with whether I've been good or bad. And if you approach him on the basis of your spiritual performance. And by that I mean if you feel bad when you're bad. If you feel good when you're good. If you approach God like that, you're not acting like a Christian because a Christian approaches God on the basis of his grace. And Jesus in Matthew 7 describes a scene that's the day of judgment when all nations will be gathered before him. And he says some people are going to come to him to be judged. And here's what they're going to say. He's going to say, they're going to say, Lord, did we not do so and so? Did we not do many mighty works for your name? Lord, did we not build a wonderful house for you? In other words, Lord... Look at what we've done for you. And Jesus says to us there in Matthew 7 that on that day he will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Because they're appealing to their spiritual resume. But that doesn't impress, <laughs> that doesn't impress Jesus at all. And John Piper has famously said that God is a mountain spring, not a watering trough, which means that the way to please God is to come to him to get from him and not to give to him. The way to please God is to come to get from him, not to give to him. And what God loves most is when we offer him our, when we offer him uh, not our strength, but when we wait for his. And so from Matthew 7, the right way to approach God is to stop saying, Lord, did I not do so and so? But instead say, Lord, did you not? Did you not come into the world to save sinners? Did you not live a perfect life of obedience and submission to the will of your Father so that all who believe in you might be counted righteous? Did you, Lord, not suffer and die in my place? Did you not bear the wrath of God that was mine to bear? Did you not suffer the hell that I should have suffered? Did you not rise on the third day so that I might rise with you in newness of life? Lord, did you not? And the reality is, is we can say what we want, but, but the truth is that you're not a Christian until you stop your doing and let Jesus do for you. That's the first lesson in 2 Samuel 7. And that's what happened to David here. He starts off to do something great for the Lord, and then we come down to the bottom of the text. you see this? I'm, I know I'm painting in broad brushes this morning. We have to, to some degree. But when you get down to the bottom of the passage, you see something shifted in his heart. David's done being busy for God now. And, and, and what happens? Look in verse 18. We're told, then King David went in, and he sat before the Lord. And you know what that means. It's a regular occurrence in my house. Sometime late in the evening, usually after the kids are in bed and the dishes are in the dishwasher, Ashley will come into the living room where I'm honestly already laid out on the couch and have been for a while, and she will plop down into the chair and she'll out, let out this enormous sigh and she'll say, Phew, I haven't sat down all day. And it's true, she means it because she's the mother of four and then you add me in there and well, there's plenty of work to do. And she's the most not lazy person I know. So what does this ritual mean? What does it mean? It means the work is done and it's time to rest. And that's, that's the right response to grace. If the only way to relate to God is on the basis of his, of his grace, that means that you can't be rightly related to him until you sit down. All of life is Grace. Second thing that we learn from this passage and also from the resurrection is that Christianity is a story of grace. And I said before that God is making a covenant here with David, and this is not the first time we've seen this. If you've been with us over the last few months, you know that he made a similar covenant with Noah after the flood and then with Abraham and then again with Moses and the nation of Israel too. So immediately 
you start to read 2 Samuel 7 and you, and you say, oh yeah, oh, this is another covenant ceremony God's making here. And then you connect this story with all of those other stories and pretty soon you, get to make, you make sense of the fact that the Old Testament, just like any story, is trying to show us it's a story and as a story it has a beginning, it has a crisis, and then it has the happily ever after. And so the beginning... God created the world to be a paradise. That's what we've been looking at here over and over again. He created all things good. The world was full of beauty and joy, and people got along and lived selflessly toward one another. Instead of greed and jealousy and competition, there was humility and kindness. It was all very good. But then the crisis. There's always a crisis. And the point of the crisis is to create the dramatic tension that drives the story along. And the crisis in our story is just this. It's sin. And sin brought death, and that is our experience of this world at present. Sin and death, sin and death, everywhere you look, sin and death. But the good news that we get to celebrate this morning is that sin and death are on their way out. Because just like in every story, there's a happily ever after. Ours has a happily ever after too. And the happily ever after of our story is here that God promises throughout the Old Testament that he's going to do a work of complete restoration. He's going to heal the world. He's going to defeat sin and death. And so you read passages like Isaiah 25, which is really almost too good to be true, where the prophet says that the Lord will swallow up death forever and will wipe away all tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth. Life is full of tears. The apostle says we go through life groaning and longing and with this, this sense of need created by heartbreak and loss because the world is no longer what it once was and it is not yet what it will one day be. But there is something coming. There's something that will swallow up death and make everything sad come untrue. And that something is captured in this one word in this passage, the word kingdom. Look down at verse 13. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, God says. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. And the kingdom of God is the happily ever after. In the Bible, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is the place where you find righteousness and justice and peace. It's where you find the flourishing that God meant for us to enjoy from the beginning where generosity and kindness rule the day. There is no cancer and there is no funerals. And I wonder, have you ever had a nightmare that was so vivid that you woke up in a cold sweat panicked? Anybody ever experienced that? It's okay to nod and interact with me. It actually kind of helps to know that you're alive out there. Okay? Yeah, good. You wake up scared to death, and then you realize, oh, it was only a dream. And it's so unbelievably great because you know that what was so terrifying isn't real and lasting. It begins to fade. And everything that was so scary and bad begins to come untrue as you shake yourself out of sleep. Here's what the Bible would teach us, that the kingdom of God is the happily ever after that is coming, and it will be so great that it will make all the pain and the disappointment and the loneliness and the frustration and the sadness and the loss that we experience in this life, it'll make all of that seem just like a bad dream. But the question before us is, then how does the kingdom come? How does this happen? I mean, in all of the stories, how does the crisis resolve into the happily ever after? You know, I mean, you know the answer. It's always through the hero. The hero shows up. Just when it seems like all hope is lost, ta-da, you know, there's the hero. And he comes to save the day. And so the question that we have to answer this morning as we consider 
this passage and all of the Bible is who's the hero of the story? And we have to ask the question, because if you listen closely to the narrative of unbelief that is more and more coming out of our culture, the stories that we tend to cherish, and this, should, this really should be scary. I mean, it is for me. It's frightening. But the stories that we seem to cherish that make the nightly news or that people write about are the ones that cast God as the villain and us as the hero. And that's a function of our sin. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We love to play the hero. So what happens is, is most of us cast ourselves as the hero of our own story. We work for the happily ever after. It's our work. We play and we fun ourselves towards the happily ever after, or we try to calendar our way or organize our way to the happily ever after. If it's even possible to try to prepare uh, and preach yourself to the happily ever after. But here's the problem. Christianity is a story of grace, and that means you and I aren't the hero. There's a hero, but it's not me. <laughs> and the hero, we're told, we're, we're pointed to him here in, in, in these verses, 13, 14, and beyond here in 2 Samuel 7. The hero is the king. The hero is this king that God's promising here. So the, the, the message to me and to you this morning is, is, I'm not the hero Jesus is. What that means is this is, I'm not the one in my life doing the saving, which must mean... I'm just like everybody else. If I'm not doing the saving, it must mean I must need saving. And we're reading the prophets this year in CBR, and you can't understand the pro- community Bible reading. I should, our community Bible reading program, which we do together, we're reading the prophets in the Old Testament, and the prophets really make no sense unless you understand the hope of 2 Samuel 7, because the prophets put all their hope in this king that God is promising here that David has a son. And in the immediate context, David's son named Solomon comes, and there's this great expectation of what David's son Solomon, whether he's going to be the king that God is talking about here. Uh, but, but Solomon, of course, comes and goes and fails miserably in many ways, and all of the rest of the kings that came from David's house, uh, who the people might have expected to bring God's salvation, in fact, failed time and time again. And the prophets understand this, and so they take this passage and they say there's another king who hasn't come yet, the Messiah, and he will be the hero that we need, which is why when the angel comes to Mary in Luke chapter 1, which Jonathan read at the beginning of our, ser- uh, beginning of our service, and these are the angel's words, he said, you will have a son, and he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And those words are loaded with significance. And what the angel is saying is finally... Finally, the king, David's greater son, has come. Finally, the king is here. I mean, can you imagine the expectations of the people? What they would have expected of him? He shows up saying, the kingdom of heaven has come. And he starts to raise the dead and throw demons out of people. And the crowds could hardly contain themselves. And then Good Friday came and all of that seemed lost. And the disciples began to scatter. And the people were kicking themselves for daring to believe yet again that he might really be the king they'd waited for. And there is Jesus in the grave. And all their hope is lost. And it's over. But that was Friday. J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, said that the power in all the stories that we love is the dramatic tension that's created by the tragedy that there's some sort of conflict, some sort of enemy or threat or obstacle that must be overcome or defeated. And yet, despite the tragedy, there's always the happy ending. There's the improbable victory where just at the darkest moment when all hope seems lost, victory is snatched away from defeat. And he said, if you look closely enough at all of these stories, you'll see a turn of events. There's always this turn of events 
that leads to the happily ever after. And he called it the eucatastrophe. And he went on to write uh, that, that Christianity has all of the elements of the other stories we love, especially the Easter story, because just when it seemed that Jesus' death signaled the end of all of the hopes about who he was and what he was going to do, his disciples were sulking and hiding, but that was Friday. And then on Sunday came the improbable victory. The darkness turned into the happily ever after. The angel proclaimed to the, proclaimed to the women who came to the tomb, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. In the resurrection, we're told, displayed Jesus as the king, Second Samuel 7, pointed to, who would bring an eternal, do you see that word? An eternal kingdom. Not the miracles, not the cross, not his death. Peter looks at the crowds at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and he says, Let the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. In other words, you can know with absolute certainty, with absolute confidence that Jesus is the king. He is the hero that you need. He is the one who can save you from sin and death and that he will do what he's going to do, what he says he's going to do. Why? Because he is not dead, he's alive. That's what Peter says. And so the last thing then, not the, all of life is grace. And we're in the middle of a story of grace, which means I'm not the hero. I'm not the one doing the saving. I'm the one who, like everyone else, must be saved. And so the last thing we learn from the passage and from the resurrection then is how to be a people of grace. In other words, how do you live in the story but not cast yourself in the part of the hero? How do you live as a person who needs saving rather than a person who's doing the saving. What does it look like to live in the story of grace, but not as the hero? So let me just make some applications, and then I'm done. Now, there are, there are two things, primarily, we see David doing here at the end. If you go all the way down to the end of the passage, uh, okay, David, the first thing, David leaves this encounter with the Lord first, risking. He leaves risking. He's full of courage. Look there in verse 27. He says, For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. So David's full of courage because of what the Lord says here. And the next thing we see David doing, if you have a Bible, these things we used to bring to church before everything was on the screen, you know, like, now I was just, never mind, it's a joke, forget it. Gosh. If you turn, if you have a Bible and you were to go one chapter over, the next thing he's doing is he's going to war. He's taking risks, he's being bold. And that's the thing about knowing you're not the hero. If I'm the hero of my story, this is one of the things I've learned. If I, if I live as if I'm the hero of my story, uh, I get into trouble. But if I'm not the hero of my story, then what that means is I'm not limited by my weaknesses or shortcomings or sins. And that actually gives me courage. It makes me dream bigger dreams than I would otherwise. It takes away my fear of failure. And that, that's the big deal, that the way that fear... Well, fear grips our life. And Ernest Becker said in 1973 that the fear underneath every other fear is the fear of death. So it's the fear of death. The fear of death is the great enemy of risk-taking in the kingdom of heaven. It makes us cautious, wary, restrained, confined, narrow. It robs us of adventure and dreams for the sake of Christ and his kingdom and the cause of love in the world. To use John Piper's words, it is a slave master of the fear of death binding us with invisible ropes, confining us to small, safe, innocuous, self-centered ways of life. But what is it that Peter says in Acts 2? It's amazing. It's amazing. Acts 2.24, Peter says to the crowd at Pentecost, God raised Jesus up, 
loosing the pains of death because it was impossible for him to be held by it. And so the message of Easter Sunday, what I get to proclaim to you this morning is, there is nothing left to fear. Death, even death, the greatest enemy, death, which is the fear, the fear of death, the fear underneath every other fear in our life. Death has been swallowed up in victory. There's nothing left to fear. We don't live under death's shadow anymore. And so we don't have to live small, safe, innocuous, self-centered lives either. We can be full of courage like David was. He says to the Lord, verse 28, your words are true. And that's what Peter says. Now you can know, Peter says, now you can be absolutely sure. Now you can know for certain. And what happens when you're sure? What happens when you know 100% for sure it makes you bold? You go through life risking because the promise of the resurrection is always there. David's risking. But the second thing, and the last thing I want to say, is David not only leaves this encounter with the Lord risking, but he also leaves praying. He's not only full of courage, but he's also full of humility. Look at He's been softened. Look at, what he, look at what he prays in verse 18. Who am I, O Lord? What is my house that you have brought me thus far? And, and, and so there's, there's, a, there's a praying nature to his life now. And that means a couple of things. First, if I'm not the hero, if I'm not doing the saving, but I need saving... And one of the things is, is I won't be full of self-importance. I won't take myself so seriously. I don't know if you know this. I'm reading a book by a guy named Zach uh, Erswine. And uh, he says, it's a book to pastors. And he basically is chiding pastors because uh, we get into this business because we have Messiah complexes to begin with. Uh, really, it's really truth. And so there's the, t- the temptation for a pastor is to think, I have to know it all. I have to be it all. I have to do it all. But those are attributes that belong to God alone. And David is finally at a place where he says, you know what? I don't have to know it all. I don't have to be it all. I don't have to do it all. I don't have to take myself so seriously. I don't have to get it right all the time. I don't always have to know the answer. I don't have to be the solution. Listen, some of you, this, is the, this, this would set you free. I don't have to be the solution to every problem I come across. Because there's this, he's praying. And this kind of humility, that's humility, see? And that humility leads to compassion. In chapter 8, David goes to war. In chapter 9 of 2 Samuel, uh, he loves his enemy, Mephibosheth, the grandson of his friend Jonathan. David is a mighty man of war, but he's also a man mighty in mercy. And that's what grace does in your life. It makes you generous and compassionate towards other people who are struggling because, see, the reason you can be compassionate towards people who struggle is because you know that both they and you need a Savior. It's when you're, it's when you're in, in the role of hero that it's hard to be humble. And then humility and compassion lead to, lead to prayer. Eugene Peterson says, when David sat down before the Lord, it was the farthest thing from passivity or resignation. It was prayer. And sitting down, sitting down doesn't mean there's no work to be done. I know I said that at the beginning, but, but okay, you stop working. That doesn't mean there's no work to be done. It means that you live knowing you, you go about your work, you live your life with this mindset. You live knowing that your plans and your power are not enough. That's prayer. Prayer is this attitude of the heart that lives knowing that my power and my plans are not enough. And so I'm leaning into God to accomplish what I can't accomplish for myself. Now, the hope of the resurrection that's before us this morning is this. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, get this, this, is, this should blow your mind. Paul says that the very same power of God that raised Christ from the dead is now pointed towards us to go to work for us. That's Ephesians chapter 1. 
God's power, not my power, God's power, the power that raised Christ from the dead, what we celebrate here this morning, the power of God that raised Christ from the dead now at work in my weakness. And therefore, we have incredible reasons, incredible reasons to be full of courage, to be bold and free of the fear of death, but also humble and compassionate towards others in their struggles. That we, that's what it means to be people of grace, that we go through life risking, that we go through life praying. That's the people, that's the Easter people. That's a people who've experienced the reality of Easter. That's how this day changes our life. We go through our life risking. We go through our life praying. Know that all of life is grace. That we live in a story of grace. But that ultimately he's called us to be people of grace. And that's how you make much of Jesus. Put your hope. Put your heart's trust in him today. Whether you're a Christian or not. Look to him. Today is about him. It's not about us. He is risen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus. Thank you for these words that you've given to us from your, from your scripture. Uh, may they really be an encouragement to us that, that in many ways where we are, in, in, it's hard, it's subtle for us to see our pride in this sometimes, but where in ways we might be tempted to, um, to, to want to play the part of hero or to go through life really leaning and looking to our plans and our power to, to accomplish the things that we need. Would you please grant us repentance even, even in that, that the last domino of sin that might be true of our lives would fall, that we would cease trying to be people who can earn salvation through our good works, that we would cease being people who would try to build something that we could hold it up to you and say, look, Lord, what I've done. And instead, you'd give us the grace and the courage to come before you now and sit, to lay our doing down, down at Jesus' feet, and finally stand in him and him alone, gloriously complete. Like Peter, to, to put our doing down and to let you do for us, because that is the heart of faith. So grant that to us this morning, we pray. And may it result in joy and exulting and celebrating of you, for you are a great God and Savior. And the resurrection proves once and for all that indeed God has crowned you King of kings and Lord of lords. And so we look to you today and pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Written over this entire weekend, and therefore if your faith is in the Lord Jesus, written over every part of your life are the words, it is finished. Amen. I mean, that really is true. And so, so yet again, here at the benediction, if, if that's true, if it is finished, then all that is left for us to do is lift the hallelujah. And that's what he longs for us the most. The most. And so here in the benediction, the benediction is not God saying, go and do for me. The benediction is, say, is saying, go and as you go, know that I will be doing for you. Right? And in that, we become riskers and we become prayers. And so, again, here's the, here my hands are raised over you as a sign of God's promise to you to go to work for you because all of life is grace. And so go, uh, risk, and go and pray knowing that he uh, will never weary of his doing for you. That's the promise of the benediction. So if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, what's left for you to do today is to celebrate him, to remember him, to feast unto him and to lift your hallelujah to him. So go and do that. That's the work before us today. So receive the benediction then. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. He is risen.